Welcome to Ottawa Valley Vineyard, where we simply want to help you encounter Jesus, be transformed, and share his love. and preparing, wondering what to uh, what to do uh, from a scripture perspective. Of course, we want to just continue with the Jesus story. So we've been, uh, in the weeks past, we've been uh, looking through like the Last Supper in Luke. Uh, we jumped forward to the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, we had a look at um, uh, what we looked at yesterday, uh, or last week rather, and uh, really just sort of understanding that uh, the story that we want to be anchored in is just the story of Jesus' last days uh, before he was crucified, leading up, of course, to Good Friday. Um, where we wanted to look today was uh, to jump back in the story a little bit to Palm Sunday, which happened before uh, any of this stuff that uh, we've looked at. And so I think it's just really good for us to just go back. It's Palm Sunday, sort of honor the Christian calendar, connect with it, but it's a small uh, jump back in time in terms of the story. So you'll just have to track with me. Um, and of course, this uh, Palm Sunday deal, uh, Good Friday, is this incredible sort of joyful uh, thing. We read Psalm 118 earlier, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, like celebrate, dance with palm branches, celebrate the coming of Jesus as King into the world. Uh, we want to sort of connect with those ideas. Um, and of course, it made me think of, you know, other sort of celebrations of the beginning of, uh, of royalty. And so I put this image up here of um, uh, Queen Elizabeth. It's a little bit pixelated, but this is her coronation day. And uh, the, that's the carriage that she rode into London on. Um, and uh, just this phenomenal event that was like picked up by culture in 1958, this incredible pomp and circumstance, you know, for Queen Elizabeth's coronation, there were uh, 8,251 guests who were in the church. I don't know how they crammed them in there or whether they, they weren't, it's not like they were using live streaming or video feeds, right? So they had those people crammed in the church. Uh, 30,000 people were in the procession, 2,000 reporters. Like this was an unmatched media extravaganza for its time. Like TV was barely invented at this stage. Uh, the sales of like 14 inch TVs in the UK just went bonkers. Um, uh, 32 and a half million viewers out of a 36 million person population like that give you an idea of how much the uptake was on this uh, the crown 1033 diamonds in her coronation crown 169 pearls uh, the gown that she wore was like 3500 hours spent just embroidering uh, the cloak that she wore like crazy stuff uh, 10 pounds uh, 10,000 pound gold coach that we saw earlier this massive thing eight gray horses named Cunningham, Tovey, uh, Tedder, and so on, and 82 permits to roast oxen, just for weird facts. Like, when do you roast an oxen? Has anybody ever roasted an oxen? I don't know, but 82 uh, permits to roast oxen. I don't know how many oxen got roasted, but 82 permits were issued. So this crazy uh, thing, this massive extravaganza. But looking back on it from her later years, uh, in an interview with the Queen that happened in uh, 2018, she sort of tells some of the behind-the-scenes story of it. For example, she tells the story of being in the in the coach, and she's like, the coach was really uncomfortable. Like, the thing is 10,000 pounds, and it doesn't have shock absorbers. It's sprung on leather straps. So, like, crazy. And she, so she, the Queen is kind of like, in her later years, complaining about the discomfort of it. 
But she's also reflecting on some of the meaning of the event, like what was going on behind the scenes. The service that they did that was her coronation service was a three-hour service. Uh, there were parts of it that were like whispered in her ear that only she as the sovereign uh, was going to hear. Uh, their service that they did was a service that was over a thousand years old. It was first done in the nineteen or in the nine hundreds, and uh, and this sort of rich experience behind the scenes that all of us looking at that coronation uh, from you know the crowds or anybody who was looking at it from the TV or whatever it was was seeing you know this chariot going down the road and and the pomp and the circumstances, but weren't catching the deep meaning behind it. Well, the same is true of Jesus. Um, amazing uh, sort of triumphal entry into Jerusalem, this moment where he's recognized as king. And what the apostles are doing uh, as they write the gospel stories is they're giving us those inside moments, the inside scoop on some of what Jesus actually did to prepare, some of what was happening um, behind the scenes so that we would understand the deep meaning of it and not just see uh, the waving of palm branches and the shouting of Hosanna. There's just so much more richness there for us. In terms of the queen. Uh, she, she said this about her coronation. She said, I'm sure that this, my coronation is not the symbol of a power and a splendor that are gone, but a declaration of our hopes for the future. And that was certainly true of what Jesus did uh, when he entered into Jerusalem uh, with uh, his disciples riding on a donkey. Uh, it wasn't just uh, the entry of a king, something for us to look back and remember, but there are things in that story which are our hope for the future, and so we want to grab on them. Uh, it was a perplexing and a strange and a difficult time when Jesus was in. So the crowds were excited about him. They were the rabble. They were the, the poorer folks, while the uppity-ups, the leaders, were like sneering at him. So there was this sort of disunity around Jesus and who he was. The crowds were going over to him. Uh, the rulers were threatened by this and plotting to destroy him. And so it was this crazy, perplexing time with so much going on. And uh, a thought about that life, living in perplexity, I think is really important for us as we're living in a strange uh, period of time here now, uh, sort of camped out in our houses, uh, wrestling with a, a fight against the virus. There's a lot to think about. These are perplexing times. And into the middle of these perplexing times, we're introducing uh, the idea that Jesus is our sovereign King and Lord. And what does that mean for us in perplexing times? Where do we find peace from that? Where do we find hope in that? Um, just this little quote, the perplexing cacophony turmoil and splendor of this moment in Jesus' life is meant to be seen as something firmly anchored in the ancient future forever unfolding story of God's kingdom of peace coming to earth as it is in heaven. So we're looking at this crazy story of palm branches and cloaks thrown on the ground and the whole deal. But in it, it's meant, and there's so many threads through the story that are anchors into the past and hopes for the future. And that's like our life at this moment. Uh, we're in a moment of so many voices shouting, but we want to anchor this in the Jesus story. We want to anchor our journey in the Jesus story and see what he has to say to us. So we're just going to read the text and then we'll sort of pull some of these things together. So let's look at Luke uh, chapter 19, verse uh, 28 to 44. It's a bit of a lengthy text, but I think it's just worth digging into the meat of it. And we'll just 
start tackling it together. And when he had said these things, so Jesus was preaching up in the countryside. Uh, he was coming from Jericho was the last place we know where he was in the Luke account. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount that is called Olivet, we call it the Mount of Olives. He sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where on entering, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Again, strange details, and we'll see what the meaning is. Uh, untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it uh, just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it, and as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Okay, that's a crazy uh, lot of material. If you attended Sunday school as a kid, you'll have seen images like this, just Jesus coming uh, through the Mount of Olives. Uh, coming down, coming through the Kidron Valley. We talked about that last week, uh, sitting up on a donkey and the people sort of celebrating him. That's sort of the Sunday school kind of image. Uh, we have a little map here to show you what that probably looked like. Jesus was coming in uh, from uh, the east, coming down the Mount of Olives, uh, across near the Garden of Gethsemane, down across the Kidron Valley. We talked about that and into the temple uh, through uh, the Golden Gate. And uh, the gospel writers work really hard to make sure that we understand the details, the steps along the path, because again, there's so much richness and meaning for us in that. So let's just unpack the story. We're going to jump right to this uh, idea that he told his disciples to go into the village in front of him and, uh, and to find the colt. So we'll just read this little bit again. Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you'll find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it, bring it here. If anyone says to you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So basically they stole a car. Uh, if you want to put it like that, like, like, like just step back from the story for a second. Hey, disciples, hey guys, you know what? You're going to go into town, going to go into Carlton Place and somewhere parked near the Max uh, at, uh, at Highway 15, you're going to find a, a Chevy a Volt uh, sitting there. The door's going to be open. The keys are going to be unlocked or in it. Uh, so you're going to have to just get in there. Just pretend that uh, it doesn't, it's no big deal. If it's locked, break in, hotwire it, whatever. And if anybody sort of says to you, hey, dude, that's my car, just say, well, the Lord needs it. Right? Like it's a crazy story, right? Jesus basically tells him to steal this guy's colt. 
Um, and of course, uh, that's what happened. So they break into this guy's uh, yard or whatever. They untie his his colt, his, his little donkey, and they walk it out uh, of the yard with the, the owner going, well, they said the Lord needed it, so I guess it's okay. All right, so what does that all mean? Uh, what the disciples were doing when they're trying to tell us that, what Luke was doing, and of course this story does, I keep saying the disciples or the apostles, but this story is written uh, in all of the Gospels. This story is written in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, we see in the Matthew account, uh, Matthew makes note that the colt's mom was with it at the same time. But there's just some uh, details there, some interest uh, for us. But what we want to really pick up from the story is that uh, in the story, Jesus used um, his knowledge. He used foreknowledge. He knew that that cult was going to be there. He ordered the steps of his disciples. He was authoritative in telling them what to do and where to go. Uh, he commanded the resources of a person uh, that presumably he knew or he knew something about, maybe through the Spirit or maybe he had prearranged something we don't really know. Uh, but he commanded resources in, in his name. He exercised the power of his name and he saw his plan fulfilled in, in sort of a temporal reality kind of way. He's like, guys, do this and it's going to work out. And I think we wanted to step back from that. The disciples are telling us that story because I think they're expecting us to relate to Jesus in the same way. Uh, they're expecting us to sort of say, hey, Jesus, we're your servants. We're listening to you. Would you give us guidance? Would you tell us what you know before we know it? Uh, would you tell us uh, what to do? Would you uh, empower us with your resources? Would you let the power of your name be exercised as we pray for the sick and all of the things that we do? And would you ultimately see your plan fulfilled in our eyes? So he means for us to operate in his authority. Uh, like that today. And, uh, and I want us to, to realize that when, when perplexity is happening, when chaos is going on, when we don't know what's happening, when we don't know what the plan is for our lives, uh, we need to step back to find peace in the midst of it and, and say, it, everything gets better when we live in obedience to his lordship. That's what we're really seeing in that peace, that people just obeyed what he told them to do. And it worked out. For us, we spend so much time and energy on decision-making, on trying to figure out what to do. Should I go out? Should I get groceries today? Should I get them tomorrow? Uh, should I wear gloves? Should I wear a mask? Uh, what are the rules? I'll check the government website. All of that stuff is, is good, valid, important stuff. Uh, but in terms of how we live our lives, uh, fulfilling our call to the kingdom of God, there's a way in which we check in with him, we listen to him, and we're confident that he's going to speak and we're confident that he's going to lead us. We are a relational people who are living underneath the authority of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And the disciples, the writer, Luke here, wants us to see that we can live lives like that, obedient to him, and that's where the peace and that's where the joy is for us. So that's the first thing we want to notice from Jesus' journey into Jerusalem. Peace comes through obedience. The story goes on. Uh, this took place to fulfill what was spoken to the prophets, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you humble, lowly, mounted on a donkey. Uh, we want to notice that first phrase, uh, to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. So Jesus 
arranged all of this. And one of his purposes in arranging all of this whole ride into town on a donkey uh, was to fulfill something that had been written in the word of God long before he was alive. Now he spoke the word into existence uh, before the beginning of time. These scriptures that we read are God breathed, vital, living documents that are meant to inform us and transform us and make us new and guide us. And he felt like it was important to see that the words that he had spoken through the scriptures would be fulfilled in his actions in a tangible way that would be recognized by his disciples and would be seen. So we need to know that we can find uh, peace in perplexity as we recognize that he exercises his authority to his word uh, through his word. Um, we find peace and perplexity that way when we trust in him, when we trust in his word. And listen, there are so many places that you can go to try to feel calm and chill in these difficult times. And it could be Netflix or it could be, you know, Amazon Prime or Crave or whatever it is, or the Disney Channel, uh, whatever it is, or the news media. Um, and I've, I've been saying this, I've been repeating this for the past couple of weeks. If that is your source of encouragement and life, then you're hooped. We're totally hooped. If we want to find any peace at all in this time, we have to pick up our Bibles. We have to pick them up and read and let the word of God dwell in us richly because that is where the peace is. This book that we honor and cherish is something that is meant to anchor us and hold us steady. There are promises that he's written in his word that we need to hold dear and camp out on and live in. If we want peace and perplexity, we have to trust in his word goes on to say this. He says, uh, he came to you humble and mounted on a donkey, a colt, a foal of a beast of burden. I mean, that is an interesting choice of a ride into town. Uh, that's like, uh, you know, he could have come into town in a limo um, or, or like the Queen's Golden Coach that we looked at earlier, but he came into town in like a Chevy Volt like a, a beat up one, like an old one, like, but in this case, it's a new donkey, but this is a significant thing, like that these details were included. One, he's fulfilling that scripture that's saying that he's coming as a humble king. We need to recognize the humble aspect of his coming. So he comes humbly and mounted on a quote on a colt. And I've seen people like take this scripture and say, well, you know, kings would ride into town victorious on a donkey and they would leave town to war on a horse. But the nature of that donkey that he came into town with was unlike anything that any Roman emperor would ride into town on. They would ride into town on a well bred, well-groomed, well-dressed horse or donkey rather that was bred for that purpose. But the disciples, Luke made a point, all of them, of, of making us understand that this was a colt. This was a young one, right? This is one that wasn't trained. This is one that hadn't borne burdens before. This is one that hadn't been ridden before. This is like going for a ride in your Chevy Volt with Michael Hall at the wheel. Right? This thing is all over the map. It's not trained. It has to be led. He couldn't direct it. He couldn't guide it. Somebody had to lead it. Uh, we see from the Ma Mark or the Matthew account that the colt had its mother with it. So the mother is what helps lead it. The disciples lead it. So he's coming into town in a state of vulnerability. And he's coming into town not on a 
beast that is bred for glory, but a beast that was bred for service. And so we need to see that in his heart. He comes humble, vulnerable. He comes as a servant. And we find peace in perplexity when we trust in and model that humility, vulnerability, and heart to serve. And that's got to be all over uh, our social media presence. That's got to be all over the way we live, the way we act. Uh, in this time when we feel threatened, I remember I had a little dog named Nelson, and uh, he was just this weenie of a little dog. He was a dachshund, and he was scared of everything. He was the most terrified little beast you could ever see. And the way that he dealt with his fear is that he just barked loud like crazy all the time if he ever felt afraid. Um, and that's how we could be as Christians. We don't want to be living like that. We want to live in this time when we're fearful, not barking loud, but walking in humility and grace and in service as part of the way that Jesus walked in this moment. Remember, the crowds are, are shouting, they're, they're elevating him, they're seeing him as the Messiah, they're calling him a king, but he is coming into town because he needs to come into town, but he's doing so in a very, very humble manner. We need to walk in that humility to be people walking uh, in peace in times of perplexity. Um, that's a reference to uh, Zechariah uh, chapter 9, 11. Um, As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free, set your prisoners free from the watery pit. Uh, when we look at that moment, um, when Jesus came into town riding on a donkey. Our minds go back to that Zechariah 9 passage. We jump ahead a couple of verses from Zechariah 9, 9, and we see this uh, reference to the way that Jesus came to be a sacrifice. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit, set you free from the dry place, set you free from Gehenna, set you free from hell. So he exercises his authority uh, to fulfill the promise of salvation through his blood. It's really important to notice that he's coming uh, hailed as a king, but he's coming to offer his blood. He's coming not to sit on a throne in Jerusalem. He's coming to be a sacrifice. They don't know it yet. They're proclaiming things from Zechariah chapter 9. Uh, written in that very text is the story of what's actually about to unfold uh, for him, that he's about to set his prisoners free. So we find peace and perplexity through trusting uh, in his blood. His way of saving is not what we expected. We're going to see that in the rest of the text as we go on to. So they brought this colt to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, uh, they set Jesus on it, and as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. Listen, uh, this is a strange moment. Uh, they're taking their cloaks off. They're taking, uh, you know, items that would have been worn to sort of display their splendor, to display their status. Uh, the nicer the cloak you had, uh, the more wealth you had. Uh, your cloak was a valuable resource to you. And what they were doing is they're spreading those things on the donkey, spreading them on the road for him to trot on them, is they were laying down uh, a sense of their dignity and laying down a sense of their status to recognize his high dignity and his high status. Uh, it's really important for us to recognize uh, that these moments when, when he comes into our lives, when he comes in lordship, if we want to be people who are going to live in peace in these moments of perplexity, we have to be people who will live in self-sacrifice. We have to be people who will live uh, with hearts of worship, who will live laying down our dignity to see that he is glorified. 
Um, that's just another thing that speaks to this moment. Um, there's so much, uh, opportunity to sort of sit on our couches and let things flow into us. And that's really good. Like I, hopefully you're sitting here and letting the word flow to you uh, through this streaming. But the hope is that there will also be space and time recognizing the Lordship of Jesus where the screens are turned off or maybe you're putting on some kind of worship video or something where your heart explodes in worship and you dance like David danced, laying down your dignity with wildness and praise, recognizing that the King of Kings and Lord of Lords has come into this world and he's worthy to be praised. We have to live lives of worship. We have to have lives of humility that turn itself into the declaration of his glory. It's a part of being people of peace. As he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise uh, God for all his mighty works. So they're remembering the miracles, right? They're remembering all of the amazing things that he did, uh, the people that he healed. They're remembering uh, just a few verses uh, ago uh, that he raised Lazarus from the dead. Word of that story had spread like wildfire. So he's somebody who was raising people from the dead and they were excited about him. They were excited about the mighty works. But we have to take back a moment and just pause because those same people who celebrated his mighty works when he came into town riding on a donkey uh, later all deserted him. And later all were crying out to crucify him or were denying him. So we need to pause for a second and just ask ourselves the question, uh, are we following Jesus because of his mighty works? And is that enough? Is that enough for us? Is that enough to inspire the commitment and the solidity and the groundedness that we need? Do we just love him when he does stuff for us? Uh, we need to find peace and perplexity when we love relationship with him more than we love works. Uh, we have to love him for who he is, for who he's revealing himself to be, uh, for this humble king who comes uh, in service, uh, riding on a humble donkey. Um, and we know him that way and not just love him for the stuff that he gives us. In fact, if you look at this passage, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the whole sort of anchoring phrase for all of our songs about Hosanna, all of our songs about Palm Sunday, this explosion of joy. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And we see uh, that that text is drawn from Psalm 118 verse 25. Uh, here it is again in Psalm 118 verse 25. Um, but we need to look at that whole text. There's a reference to something there, but there's something uh, in the story that we need to pick up or in the flow of that text. Here's verse 25, the verse before it. It says, Oh Lord, we pray, give us success. So the object of prayer in this moment is, Lord, please give us success. Please give us victory. Please give us a new king. Please uh, kick out the Romans. Please uh, make us wealthy. Please uh, stop them from overtaxing us. Uh, please heal our bodies. And those things are amazing, good, and wonderful things. As part of why in the text they're coming to him, they're, they're saying, hey, we want this king, we want this Messiah to come into town. Um, but Luke has sort of anticipated that attitude that is longing for a sign. Even the Pharisees were looking for some sort of sign. And in Luke 11, it says this, it says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. He's sort of prophesying, I think, 
this moment when the people are looking for a certain kind of victory, a certain kind of success, a certain kind of security, a certain kind of hope. And Jesus is going to give them a different kind of security and a different kind of hope. Um, and we see that uh, following up in the next verse, following blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. The cry is bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. So people are saying, give us success. We will give you a sacrifice. And what they don't know in that moment is the sacrifice they're about to bind to the horns of the altar is Jesus himself. They're going to be the ones who are crying, crucify him. The miracles, wonderful. Uh, the sense of God's provision, wonderful. But that isn't enough to hold you to him. He's come to give you something different. He used his incredible authority to offer them pardon when they thought they needed power. He offered them forgiveness and grace when they thought they needed a king. We have to be people who are looking for him to come as he is, as who he is meaning to be, to receive uh, the salvation that he offers us on his terms. We find peace in perplexity when we receive forgiveness in submission to his will and on his terms. Uh, when we took communion uh, just a few moments ago, uh, there's something about that experience of communion that every time I, I take it, there's something in me which also rebels against it. Because there's something in me which wants to not need it. There's something in me that wants to work out my own salvation. There's something in me that wants the strength and might and affirmation and favor of Jesus. But I don't necessarily want to admit that I have sin in my life that I needed him to save me for from. We need to be the people in the story who are recognizing what he's really coming with, what he's really coming for. Uh, some of the Pharisees at that moment spoke to the crowds like, rebuke him. Like, this is crazy. Stop shouting. Uh, Jesus, uh, rebuke your disciples. Tell them to stop worshiping me, um, worshiping you. Um, and, and he says, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. The message of Jesus, the savior of the world who brought salvation through the shedding of his blood is something that is not just of significance in the moment that people spoke about. It's not just significant that they shouted about, that they cried out about. It's not significant at that human level even. Uh, what he's saying is that if, if you don't say it, it's going to be said by the very stones. His authority extends to a cosmic scale creation will cry out. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Creation knows that story and will cry it out because it's what is the foundation of the world. It was spoken into being before the world was made. He loves you. He wants relationship with you. And his authority extends so far beyond what you can imagine. His love extends so far. If you want to find peace in this moment, allow yourself to experience the awe and splendor of God.
Allow yourself to be in awe of what he's done for you. Allow yourself to fall on your knees and worship because he is good. It says this, the story goes on, the journey goes on. There's more detail to pick up. It says, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Now that's pretty interesting language. As he would have drawn near the city, he would have been going down into the Kidron Valley and beginning to sort of march up the slope. And he would have been entering these gates that you see on your screen here, uh, the, uh, the Eastern Gate which is now all bricked up. It was bricked up sometime, um, I think in the fifth or sixth century. I'm, I didn't research the detail on that, but um, it was bricked up so that when he returned, he couldn't get in. That's literally the intention of those who bricked it up uh, because they didn't want uh, him to be coming prophetically uh, through those gates again because the story of his first triumphal entry uh, was remembered and the prophecy that he would come again is remembered. But it says, and when he drew near the city... He wept over it. And it's just so interesting because uh, you might think of that language, he's weeping over it while he's literally feeling, I think, like he's under the looming weight of it. He's looking ahead to 70 AD when every stone, we're going to see this later in the text, when every stone is about to be cast down, the Romans are about to destroy the place. And he must feel in that moment the crushing weight of a sense of grief and a sense of disappointment that while they're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They are not recognizing that he is not just coming in the name of the Lord, but he is the Lord. He is the very Lord of hosts and he's coming in and they're not going to recognize him for who he really is. And he feels the crushing weight of the sin of the city and he weeps over it. We need to connect with this idea that Jesus wasn't some kind of dispassionate person. He wasn't some kind of person who was like, because of his sovereignty, because of his foreknowledge, because of his connection with eternity from the beginnings of the world to the end of the world, that he could somehow view all of history uh, as a supercomputer with some kind of dispassion. Uh, but in that moment, he saw what was about to happen and he literally wept. You need to know that he is weeping with you when you weep. He's walking in grief with you when you walk in grief. He's walking in sorrow over your sin. He's intimately connected to you and to your needs. He knows what's happening in your life. Uh, you find peace in perplexity and difficulty and challenge through knowing how deeply and how passionately he cares for you, that he feels it for you that he loves you. We're coming near the end. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it saying this, he listens, listen to what he says. He said, would that you, even you had known on this day, the things that make for peace. Again, they're shouting Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're expecting to install him as a rebellious revolutionary King. Who's going to take out the Romans and take out the political powers that are over him. And he's like, you guys do not recognize what you really need to bring you peace in the midst of these perplexing times. You don't need strength. You don't need might. You don't need power. You don't need victory. 
you need something very different. Uh, and he walked it out on the journey. We need obedience to walk in peace. We need the scriptures, the word of God to walk in peace. We need humility, vulnerability to live as servants. We need relationship with him more than we need the stuff that he does. We need forgiveness and grace and to be set free uh, from the guilt and shame of our sin. We need to live in awe of him and his cosmic never-ending, magnificent splendor. Uh, we need to worship him and we need to receive him in the weeping. And those things are what ultimately bring us peace, not just the installation of a political king. Power and pomp won't give you peace in times of perplexity. Only the personal knowledge of Jesus Christ and acceptance of his humble authority can do that. You need to accept Jesus Christ as Lord. And listen, you might be a Christian, but you might be living as a Christian atheist. You might be living as a Christian who is just hoping he's going to do stuff for you. You need to revisit your moment of salvation, revisit your story, and accept him again as your Lord, as who he revealed himself to be in the scriptures. You need to accept this humble king and allow him to lead you in grace. So what are you going to choose? Are you going to choose the chariot or the hatchback? <laughs> we know that uh, uh, we want to go after the bling, but we need the Savior who came weak and humble and meek and lowly. And ultimately, that's the path to uh, the true bling. Ultimately, that's the path to heaven. Ultimately, that's the path to resurrection. Ultimately, that's the path to heaven. Ultimately, that's the path to the restoration of the new earth. We're going to see all of that unfold in the story as we go through to Easter and see that he was resurrected from the grave and conquered death. But the Jesus that is revealed to us is the Jesus we have to follow, the humble king who came lowly, meek, and riding on a donkey. And here's what's at stake for us. This is him uh, looking at Jerusalem as he's weeping over it. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Our lives can be seen uh, as the city of Jerusalem. And our lives can easily be torn down. Our lives can easily be destroyed. Our spiritual lives can be shipwrecked if we don't recognize the authority of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and welcome him to dwell inside of us. And again, I'm not just speaking this as an evangelistic message. I am speaking it to those who don't know Jesus yet. You need to receive him as your Lord and Savior, but I'm speaking to Christians who live as though we are our Lords and he's somewhere in our back pocket. We have to bring him into the center of our lives. We have to receive him as our Lord. This word know in this text is uh, gnosko. It's a Greek word that means experientially know. You need to experientially know relationship with Jesus. You need to know him in all of these facets that we discussed. If we want peace, Thanks for joining us. 
To connect to the ministries of Ottawa Valley Vineyard, visit ovv.ca.